0: Hey, mental workers, and welcome back to the Mental Web Podcast, your companion to early career psychology. I'm your host, Dr. Bruno Milkins, and today we are talking about a special topic that I have wanted to do an episode on for quite some time. We are talking about deliberate practice and specifically how you can incorporate deliberate practice in the way that you develop yourself as a psychologist. Here to help us out with this topic is a wonderful guest, and their name is Dr. Aaron Frost. Hi, Aaron. G'day, Bronwyn. It's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Aaron, could you just tell listeners a bit about who you are and your non-psychology passion, please?
1: Yeah, look, I'm I'm a I've been a clinical psychologist for about 25 years, and when I'm not clinical psychologying, I'm raising two children, raising a recently crippled dog who's just had some orthopedic surgery. I occasionally try and pick up a guitar or a pen to try and do some art.
0: Oh that's wonderful. I'm very sorry about the dog. Oh, I hope they recover soon. Not
1: not as sorry as he is.
0: Uh, what did he do?
1: He tripped over and broke his leg, which oh, when you're baby. a little when you're a little dog means being stuck in a crate for a
0: really oh, long time. No. Oh that's a shame. Well I'm really grateful for you to come on. So I'll tell listeners as well the background to this. So Aaron runs this psychology registrar endorsement program. Did I say that right?
1: Uh, that's correct, yeah. Yep, so
0: it's a prep program. And I saw a post on LinkedIn that was talking about the prep program. And I think the post was saying, like, we take a unique approach to training early career psychologists. And I think it mentioned deliberate practice. And I was like, oh, it really grabbed my attention. So great, great LinkedIn marketing. Um, oh, I was like, <laughs> I was like, I want to learn more about this approach, um, because I've been interested in deliberate practice for some time, and and I've found it quite difficult to incorporate into my own practice. And so I was super interested in what you do in this area, because being a certified trainer with the International Center for Clinical Excellence, which is a deliberate practice center, isn't it?
1: Very much so, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I thought that you would have some expertise.
1: No, that sounds great. I'm really looking forward to it. It should awesome. be fun.
0: So Let's chat. Yeah, let's chat. So the first thing that we wanted to talk about was what is deliberate practice? Because it might be a listener's first time in hearing these two words. So could you just give us a bit of an overview of what it is?
1: Yeah, fantastic. So I think the starting point is to recognise that deliberate practice is not the same as experience. Just being a psychologist for 10 years is not the same as practising. And actually. It's a relatively recent phenomena to think about deliberate practice in the context of psychology. Deliberate practice is much more familiar to anyone who's ever played tennis or played guitar or done art or tried writing something. Deliberate practice is the process of doing something and then striving for excellence by doing it over and over again and looking for smaller and smaller ways in which you can actually improve your performance at at its core.
0: Okay, so... Maybe this touches on something that I've heard in psychology is that we assume that the more experience you have, that you must be better at what you do. Could you just speak to that?
1: Yeah, look, um, a few years ago, Goldberg and colleagues pretty compellingly dispelled that. Uh, They did the largest ever study of exactly this question where they followed a whole bunch of psychologists over the course of their career. And some of their careers were up to 20 years long. They looked at the outcomes for clients and what they found was people were no better after 10 years, 15 years, or even 20 years of being a psychologist than they were at the beginning of their career. In fact, they were statistically worse. Oh, wow. Small effect, but worse.
0: That's a bit sad, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. And in fact, and I I apologize to some of my statistician friends because I'm going to sort of bastardize (laughs) some numbers a little bit, but Effectively, without deliberate practice, it looks like we deteriorate by about 0.6 of a percent of performance every year,
0: wow. which
1: isn't much, but over a decade, that's 6% worse performance. There's certainly no evidence that we improve.
0: Wow, that's um, very sobering because as a profession, we want to be delivering the best outcomes for our clients over time. I certainly don't want to hear that I'm going to get worse over time.
1: Sure, but I'd also like to think that I'm a better driver after 30 years than I was when I started, but there's no evidence to support that either. In fact, the insurance actuaries know pretty clearly that I'm not. so, so, So when we go away from what we want and what we hope would happen and then we look at what the data says, we sometimes get some disappointing news. If I'd spent 20 years regularly going along to, you know, defensive driving classes, working on my driving, looking to improve my gear changes and my steering and my situational awareness, then I probably would be a better driver today than I was 30 or 20 years ago. Whereas if I just get in the car, turn off, put on a podcast and drift into automaticity, there's no chance I'm going to improve because, in fact, automaticity is the enemy of progress. Oh, okay. As soon this- as you do anything easily, it stop- you stop improving.
0: This was what I was thinking as you were speaking because I was like, but surely if I see like, you know, if I have 300 more client sessions over the next year, surely I would see some improvement just by nature of doing that. But what I'm hearing is that no, if you get into the automaticity of those sessions and you're just doing the same thing over and over again, then there's no there's no evidence that that would lead to improved outcomes.
1: No, in, in fact, there's evidence to so the contrary. I am um... One of my early career psychs a few years ago said something to me which totally told me that she'd got it, but it was such a such a neat little moment. We were heading towards the end of her registrar program and she said to me, you know what, Aaron, I can sort of feel that it's gotten easier to do my work. You know, I don't have to work so hard before each client. I don't have to think so hard afterwards. I can go into a session and my heart rate's not up and I'm, I'm a little bit relaxed and it's so much easier than it was. And on the one hand, that feels like I'm progressing, but on the other hand, that feels like the beginning of the slippery slope where I slide into mediocrity and I'm like, yep, you get it. That's the beginning of the slippery slope.
0: So are you saying that like to not stagnate, we always need to have our heart rate up a little bit?
1: Hopefully not. Hopefully it doesn't have to be attached to poor heart rate variability and increased heart rate. But, but in, interestingly, deliberate practice is hard work. When you actually do something that is deliberate practice, you can only do it for half an hour, an hour or so. You you, you find it mentally fatiguing.
0: I mean, like I, I do guitar as well. And when I practice mm. guitar, if I want to improve how I'm playing a piece of music, I will start with, usually I start with trying to play the whole way, whole song through and I usually find that I can't get very far. So what I do is I yep. break it down and then I will literally select out like phrases that i am not doing smoothly or up to the speed that i want to and then i will put the metronome on to like 40 beats a minute which is quite slow and then i will make sure that i can get that phrase 40 beats a minute then i'll speed up to 45 beats a minute and that could take me half an hour to do just to get this phrase and then i'll do the few notes beforehand so i can smooth out the phrase and then i'll do the few notes afterwards so i can get it into the next thing but it is quite intensive work and I'm like, good job, Bronwyn. You did a phrase today, like a, few, a collection of notes. But So it's slow, but, but it means that the next time that I try and pa- play that piece of music through, it's definitely smoother than it was before.
1: Absolutely. And, and what you're talking about there is deliberate practice. Okay. You're taking something that's, that's a stretch goal. It's something that's beyond what you're capable of doing right now and then you're putting a whole scaffolding and a whole system of um, practice in place to actually improve it and and i guess to to follow your metaphor the opposite of that would be picking a beatles song that you know has you know three relatively simple chords that we can play comfortably and when we practice guitar we just do that song over and over again because it doesn't matter how many years you play eleanor rigby you're not going to get better at playing eleanor rigby whereas if you take something that is outside of your comfort zone and you push yourself your, your playing improves
0: so to me, deliberate practice makes sense in that context. It's like I, I understand how to do it because I've been trained to do it in music. Mm. I understand what it would look like in sport maybe, like if I'm trying to learn a yeah. new swing in tennis, I would break that down. But I think I struggle to understand what, how that would translate to therapy.
1: Fantastic. And that's such a good question. And I think for me this is why Freud called psychology the impossible profession, Uh, And the reason is if you are playing golf and you hit a ball and it goes left, you can adjust your swing and try again. And then if it goes right, you can adjust your swing or you can adjust your stance or you can adjust your hand position. And eventually, over a few different iterations, you'll get to the point where the ball is going straight. It might take you 10 years to get to the point where it's consistently going straight and consistently going long and going where you want to, but you can continually iterate Our problem is that, first off, a ball and a golf club is like one variable. Yes. Each client that we see might have 20, 30, 100 variables attached to them. And secondly, a golf swing takes half a second and how long it takes for the ball to land is two or three seconds. A client takes three weeks, three months, three years. So before we actually know whether our approach or our swing has been successful or not, it takes us a long time. So actually it's only been in more recent years. that so we can sort of turn to the data and look at how are we going overall and then what are the aggregate areas of poor performance and then we can work on those aggregate areas of poor performance and then we start putting deliberate practice um, processes around those areas of poor, poor performance, which will hopefully improve us over time.
0: Yeah, what you're saying, uh, it speaks well to something that I noticed when... Uh, in the first few years that I was practicing, which is sometimes I would say something in sessions and it would land so well, and I would get a great response from the client, and I'd be like, "That was the best thing I've ever said. I'm going to say that to everyone." And then when I yep. said it to everybody, it flopped, and I was like, "Didn't work That's so out. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. And,
0: and, I th- and I think it speaks to that. It's like, but every other client comes with fifty unique variables. So the thing that I said to this client in that moment in that specific context, that worked really well, but it, it didn't work for those other clients. So maybe my question then is, is like, okay, if you're looking at these aggregate areas of poor performance, how do I get better when everyone's so different?
1: This is a fantastic question. So I, th- I think there's a couple of things that I want to pick up on there. The first thing is in terms of aggregate areas of poor performance, actually, can I just give a, a neat little example yeah, of what this might do. look like? And this, this is a registrar um, recently recently. So this is one of the registrars in our practice who I was working with, and we looked at her data. Uh, We calculate dropout rate based on the percentage of people who don't make it to the third session. Industry standard is less than 30%. We aim for about 20% dropout rate in our practice, so dropout is one of those key performance indicators that you can sort of look at and identify whether you're doing a good job as a therapist or not. This particular registrar had a dropout rate sitting in the early 60s. So her dropout rate is 60%, which kind of means, you think about that, two-thirds of her clients are walking in and after one session or after two sessions, they're deciding, I don't want to see this person anymore. And I, I guess I always have a bit of a humanist thing about that in that that's a huge lost opportunity because behind every client, there's a mom or a brother or a kid or a best friend or a wife or somebody who is hoping that this interaction is going to make the person that they love's life better. So the idea that two-thirds of the people are just not going to get that opportunity, that's a a critical issue to deal with. So we recognise, okay, so on aggregate, this person's dropout rate is problematic. So then we have to ask the question, why is your dropout rate so high? And if your dropout rate is high, then we need to actually figure that out. So the, the next step is we start watching videos together. I was going to ask about that because I
0: was like, well, how? Because they'd just be like, oh, I don't know. So the videos is really crucial.
1: Absolutely. And in, in, in this instance, we're very lucky. The, the issue was actually fairly self-evident. What was happening in the first couple of minutes, she'd kind of start with, hi, how are you going? What are you here for? Then she'd rapidly and abruptly end that conversation and give a lengthy spiel about ethics and then in the middle of the spiel about ethics she'd start talking about presenting problem again and then at the end of the spiel about ethics then she'd finally launch into getting to know you and you could just see that over the course of that 10 minutes of kind of continued starting to tell my story but kind of been frustrated telling my story you could just see the client's eyes were glazing over and before she'd even started therapy she'd kind of lost them So in her case, what deliberate practice looked like was, you know what, let's script you an efficient three-minute introduction to ethics and then a good way to transition or pivot from ethics into presenting problem and do that and then keep practicing that. And over the course of, I think, three months, her dropout rate went down to the mid-20s, which I'm super happy about, she's super happy about, uh, and hopefully her clients are happier about.
0: That's an amazing example. And one thing that I'm picking up in deliberate practice, is it the case that you would want to change one thing and then see the effect of that? So you wouldn't have wanted to change multiple things about that practitioner the way that they were doing things? Or, or would you?
1: I would always think one thing at a time. Yeah. Um, because, again, it's, it's a you've got to be a little bit scientific and a little bit rigorous about this. Again, if we go back to a golf analogy, if we change our hand position and then change our leg position and then change the direction of our swing, if it works, how do we know what you need to keep doing?
0: Yeah, exactly. If
1: in in that case, if we did the thing with her for a couple of months and her dropout rate didn't improve, then we can say, okay, so your ethics thing isn't the problem. Let's try another thing. Yeah. And we can iteratively finally hone in on what is the issue. Interestingly, we had another registrar in parallel who was having the same problem who Actually, it wasn't an ethics field. It was something that she was doing at the end of the session. So what she needed to do to solve the aggregate problem was not the same as what the first person needed to do.
0: And that's okay. uh, Yeah, that's okay. So it's a very uh, logical, like scientific approach where you have a hypothesis about what could be occurring here. You you test out the hypothesis by changing a thing and then you see uh, the outcomes and you're measuring that the whole way through.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Mm. But, but I certainly think about it as being a very logical and mathematical thing.
0: Yeah. I think one thing that early career psychs suffer from, and I'm going to say suffer deliberately, because yeah. I think it is um, suffering in uh, a lot of shame about how they are performing. And so I can imagine maybe that somebody whose videos are being watched, they might feel very judged and they mm. might feel like, oh God, I'm a crap clinician and, and have those global thoughts about it. And I'm just curious, how do you approach this when you're giving feedback to the clinician about, about what's happening for them?
1: This is such a great point. Um, we, the, the language that I use, and we use it all the time here at Benchmark, is the idea of developing a culture of feedback. And a culture of feedback really views feedback as a gift. Like I'm, I'm a psychologist, I've been a psychologist for 25 years. I really value being a psychologist. I really care about the work that I do, which means that if you tell me something that I'm doing wrong, that could make me better, you've given me a gift. Mm. That's an opportunity for me to improve. Uh Um, And and we view it in the other direction. I I view that helping the person get their dropout rate from 60% down to 25%, that's a gift. And I don't mean to certainly come from no place of criticism of them if you know, if I've got a problem in my data or if I've got a problem as a manager or if I've got a problem as a supervisor, if someone tells me that, that's a learning opportunity and I'm excited for that. And I think if, if I can model that as a, as a supervisor and as a senior psychologist, uh, I hope that that creates a culture for people where we're all learning and the thing that you might need to be learning on is different from the thing that I might be um, needing to learn and that's fine, but we're all working on improving something.
0: That makes a lot of sense to me actually when I put it back to the the music and the sport actually because when I think of my own guitar lessons, I would yeah. hate it if I was playing a song and my guitar and, and there was something I could improve about the song and my guitar teacher was just like, yep, all good, okay, bye. Like I, I want him to be invested in, in my progression in, in this and I want it to sound musical and I want it to be lovely to listen to. And so it sounds like when we transport that into the therapy space, it's like, yeah, it, it's your supervisor wanting t- for you to be great at what you do, but also give good outcomes to your clients. Does that sound about right?
1: Absolutely. Feedback is not the same as criticism. Yeah. If, if I go to, to your guitar analogy, I've, I've got a phrase that I've been trying to work on for 20 years okay. and I still can't play it fast enough. Um, but the guitar teacher who gave me two tips that uh, got me closer to being able to play it at the, moment, the, the, the the right metronome, I appreciate that gift incredibly.
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love that. I love the thinking of it as a gift. I think that's really lovely and a way to alleviate this shame that I think early career psychs are prone to coming in. It's like it is a gift to be able to work on your craft in a way that, that helps you deliver better outcomes.
1: And, and if I... I, I really think about it in in the other direction yeah. as well because I think about when I started clinically, um, for me the shame was in not knowing. I didn't know how effective I was. I just had a bunch of clients who came in and my books were always full and some of them liked me and some of them didn't like me and I had a you know a bunch of laughs and a bunch of tears and a bunch of emotionally intense experiences but no idea whether I was actually doing a good job or not. So for me that really kicked it off of how effective am I and then how do I benchmark that against other people because sitting there with that neurotic anxiety that maybe I'm a really lousy therapist and just nobody's bothered to tell me, that is way worse than knowing, you know what, I'm on the 50th percentile of therapists, which, you know, there are people who are better than me, but actually on the whole I'm doing a pretty decent job. Wow. Having, having the number is so much more real than living Mm. in a world of neurosis or on the flip side, a world of narcissism where,
0: you know,
1: a client client buys you some chocolates and you feel like you're the best therapist in the world Uh, for a day or two.
0: Yeah, that's a really excellent point. And yeah, I think that would resonate with a lot of listeners that the uncertainty about what's happening, I'm thinking of a very common situation that can happen. And it's like, you might have the experience of a client comes in once and then they never come back and you have no idea what that happened. And then you are drawn into that neurotic anxiety about I'm such a bad therapist. But it sounds like when you've got... Uh, when you're integrating deliberate practice into how you do things, like you might be like, I wonder what, what happened there. I, can I review what what happened with that situation?
1: Absolutely. And, and you put it into the context. If one client ghosts you and disappears and then you look at your data and you go, well, overall, that only happens with 10% of ah. clients. Industry average is 30%. I'm doing okay.
0: Wow, that's nice. I like that. <laughs>
1: So again, I, I think that the data can be looked at in a really scary, you know, working in the Googleplex and people monitoring your every movement kind of way, or you can view it in a, it's just numbers. It gives you some information that helps you benchmark your effectiveness and know where you can go about improving.
0: I really like that. It's objective and impartial. So it sounds like wondering about your own outcomes is what led you down the journey of exploring deliberate practice yourself. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so for me, after, well, while I was doing my PhD, because, you know, while I was doing my PhD, I discovered that I also like to pay rent. So, you know, I had to go and get a real job. Um, so so my, my first job was as a research psychologist um, and I worked in a large tertiary hospital, partially managing larger research projects, but doing a lot of quality assurance and key performance indicators and outcome monitoring at, at that much kind of larger global level. And then when I went out into private practice after a few years of that and started going back to, you know, my first love of clinical work, I'm like, there's no accountability here. No one's keeping an eye on this. And that just created a real insecurity for me. So it, it was timely. I, I attended a workshop from Scott Miller at about that period in time when you know he, he was just starting to talk about uh, retained outcome measurement or FIT, as he called it, feedback-informed treatment at about the time that I was having my own crisis of confidence in how effective am I, and that, that really kicked off, you know, what I guess has become the next two decades of my career.
0: Yeah, so I might be jumping ahead here, but now you run the preparation program for registrars mm. and can you tell us a bit about what prompted you to adopt the deliberate practice approach for PrEP?
1: Yeah, sure. So there's, a again, like, like many things there's a few different threads that converge one is i guess i had been training registrars for for a long time like 15 years or so now i know you know like many people i've got my own opinions as to what works and and what doesn't um and when when my wife and i started uh, benchmark psychology like most practices a lot of the new people who came to us were people who i was training and um we we got to a point that we thought we were doing quite a good job of bringing on a new psychologists and developing early career psychs. And I remember Rebecca saying to me, wouldn't it be great if you could have like a finishing school in psychology where you could go and learn mm-hmm. all of the things that you missed out on in your, your university
0: training? What a genius idea. And
1: Yeah, so so Rebecca's idea of a, a finishing school in psychology, that really opened up the idea of what what could we do and what, what would that actually look like. In terms of the deliberate practice thing, I think that that really comes down to, I go to that data that I said earlier that if you don't do deliberate practice, you deteriorate by about 0.6%. of a If you do do deliberate practice, it looks like you improve by about 5% a year. And I just think if I was going to spend the $30,000 that it's going to cost me to get a whole bunch of supervision over the first three to five years of my career, I'd like to be 20% better than I was at the beginning rather than 2% worse. So for me deliberate practice really offers the only empirically demonstrated epistemology or kind of teaching methodology that is associated with better outcomes for people. So the, the choice to go down a deliberate practice pathway just seemed like a really obvious one once, once we'd had that initial thought of the finishing school idea.
0: I mean, when you put it like that, it, it does sound quite obvious, but the the pressure I feel for early career psychologists as an early career Psychologist is quite sure. the opposite. It's I remember reading biographies of therapists, and it was like so and so is trained in lists ten different acronyms for therapy modalities. And I very much acutely felt that pressure to get trained in as many different modalities as I could. And in my first year or two, I signed up. I signed up for CBT training, ACT training, EMDR, schema therapy, and a few other bits yep. and pieces because I felt very inadequate just having yep. CBT on my profile. And so that was a huge pressure for me. So it, it seems like an obvious approach, but I think it's very unique. And I'm wondering, could you just speak to maybe that pressure that that is placed on therapists uh-huh. to learn the different modalities and have a hundred of them under their belts?
1: Yeah. Look, I, um, and whether that pressure comes from an internal yeah, you know, perfectionism internal. <laughs> and and wanting to be help, helpful, or, or whether it comes externally, but honestly, that thing of learning twenty different methodologies that's good for the trainers, that's not good for you, it's not good for your wallet, and it's not good for your clients. If if we go back to the thing that we we all know, and it's not controversial, there's the dodo bird effect, right? EMDR is not better than CBT, CBT is not better than ACT, ACT is not better than IPT, IPT is not better than EMDR. All of these things are roughly equivalent. There's, there's a little bit of a shiny new thing that happens. Um, there's this interesting research cycle where when a new methodology comes onto, um, onto the scene, it always looks about twice as effective as everything else. Um, and the reason for that is that there's a correlation between quality of study design and then effect size. The poorer the study, the bigger the effect size. So when I come up with the brilliant new Frost School of Therapy, I'm not going to have any money to study it, so I'm going to do a really dodgy study and I'll find that I'm two times more effective than everything else out there. Then it'll get the world's attention and I'll go off and deliver the training workshops about how amazing my new methodology is and other people will start replicating it and they'll introduce active control conditions and they'll introduce blinding and they'll introduce treatment fidelity. And suddenly it'll take us 10 years, but at the end of that one more run around the, um, the rat wheel, we'll find that my therapy is exactly the same as every other therapy and is back to the dodo bird effect.
0: Wow. The difference
1: is, the difference is not between therapies The differences between therapists.
0: That like just blew my mind because it's like one of the things I remember seeing a few years ago was lots of headlines saying that CBT has declined in effectiveness. And so when I hear you say that, I'm like, oh, CBT has a million studies on it. They're quite rigorous. Like it's one of the only therapeutic modalities where you can train people in it specifically, follow a manual, follow it in this controlled setting, and then see if there are any differences between that in a wait list or a or psychoeducation or something, whereas perhaps newer therapies, they may not have those rigorous studies, so they're producing better effects with, uh, with less rigorous methods. Am I understanding that correctly?
1: You're absolutely correct. Okay. When, when we when we come up with a new innovative idea, and, and I was reading this, I, I won't name the therapy, but it's it's sitting on my pinboard just behind there, and they're, they're claiming a Cohen's D of something like 3.5, so they're, they're about seven times more effective than every other therapy um the paper is called a preliminary pilot study of and i won't name the therapy it's got an n of 22 people it doesn't have a wait list it doesn't have an active treatment control it's just it's i'm sure it's a good idea and i've heard people who've been trained in this model of therapy and you know i'm sure they've got something out of it and i'm sure it's got some ideas to talk about however i can guarantee what the results are going to look like in 10 years time when other people come along and they actually do the study properly
0: Wow, God. It makes me think that psychologists are such magpies and we just want the shiny new thing.
1: Well, we again we, we come to psychology, you know, wanting to help and, you know, we, we we come in with pretty high expectations on ourselves and, you know, we are the kind of people who got the GPA of six and a half or whatever and got the first class on it and got all of those shiny certificates on our wall and we kind of get led down the path of thinking that what's gonna take us further is going off and getting these extra credentials whereas actually what we should be working on is ourselves how do we get better at doing the thing rather than just learning more things to do
0: yeah and that comes back to what you just said beforehand it's not therapies it's therapists so it sounds like prep really is that a focus to prep like focusing on the therapist personal development
1: yeah so so prep prep has a bit of um There's a few different streams that come together. The one is there's a big deliberate practice thing, so measure your data, identify your data, talk to your supervisor, watch videos. Another part is we do teach specific methodologies, but we try and the, the language that I use is taking a wide enough angle lens that you kind of see how all the methodologies are the same. I, I could absolutely tell you how, in my mind, psychoanalytic therapy and behaviourism are the same thing because I can see the overlaps and I can see the theoretical uh, discrepancy. So, so the goal is that people have that wide-angle lens that they can really see where the therapy is just, what are the commonalities, where are we just talking about the same phenomena with different language. And then we take a really narrow micro-lens. We spend an entire week working on the first sentence and the difference between, did you get parking okay today? How are you feeling about being here today? Uh, have you seen a therapist before? Those three conversations, and we role play them and we look at what works and we look at how clients respond to them. Each of those three different ways of opening a session leads to a completely different way of you and the client interacting with each other, setting a therapeutic frame, gathering information and building relationships. And no, none of those three is correct. Um, but the goal is that you as a therapist play around with each of those different ideas and figure out what's your way of opening a session. Wow. So we get right, right down into the weeds of the nitty-gritty.
0: <laughs> it's so funny that you said that none of them are correct because literally there was a question in my head and I was like, which one's the best? <laughs> and it's such, and, a, and, such a different approach.
1: And, and the answer is the one that works best for your clients.
0: Wow. Amazing that's so cool so it and and you know that's not like that's not something i'd read in a textbook like there's no like opening sentence i've never seen opening sentence practice on a on a textbook page it's like but these are the fundamental building blocks that lead to retention that lead to a good assessment that lead to a good outcome a good therapeutic relationship which is you know one of the huge factors that determine whether therapy is going to get a good outcome right
1: no it took 25 years ago, I was just told by a supervisor, you know, ask if the person, you know, had difficulty with the traffic today and it's just, you know, make light conversation. And again, it's not that that's wrong, but maybe the person's been sitting there the whole time desperate to want to get their story out and they're, you know, the idea of having light conversation seems completely anathema to them. And then another person really doesn't want to tell their story and is quite happy to spend five minutes easing into the weather.
0: Yeah, totally. Wow. That's so interesting. I find that really fascinating and I think that's such an interesting approach.
1: Anecdotally, and I'll I'll depart from the evidence here a little bit, but anecdotally, the best therapists have more options available to them at any point in therapy. So if you're just kind of reactively, they said this and now I'm going to say that, that's kind of what we see with, you know, quite junior and in some cases, um, more more mediocre therapists.
0: I wonder if this connects to the automaticity as well. Because let's say that I've got a script in my head, which is like, I always going to talking about the weather. Um, yep. And I don't modify that for the client in front of me. And what I've missed is that the client in front of me, they're like bursting at the seams to tell their story. And here I am chit-chatting about the weather. And if I don't pick up on those body cues or, or those um, tone of voice in their responses, maybe they're giving short responses. And if I wasn't on autopilot, I would pick that up, then I would be like, oh, you just you want to get straight into this, let's dive into it, Um, and that that would make a better session.
1: That's exactly right. And and if you had just two or three openings that are comfortable and that you're well practised in and as you walk from the waiting room down the hallway, you make a decision as to how you're going to open the session, it is more likely that with time and also reflection of did it work, was I right, was the data that I was gathering from the person in the waiting room leading me to make a sensible decision, you'll gradually become more expert in the choices that you
0: make. So cool. And being a practitioner yourself who has employed this deliberate practice approach, have you seen improvements in your uh, outcomes that you measure? Or could you just tell us a bit about the literature? Like, you know, if I invest in this approach, is it is it going to help me like on average?
1: Yeah, and, and that goes back to, so, so the data tells us about 5% a year. If, you, if you're actually consistent about it, collecting data and then being deliberate in your, your practice, yeah, you will be looking at around a 5% improvement. For me, disappointingly, uh, my, my numbers are improving very incrementally.
0: Is that um, okay, though? Like, that sounds good to me.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm a just over mediocre therapist Ooh. in terms of my outcomes and, and I'm okay with that. For 20-odd for years and, you know, for the 20-odd years ahead of me, uh, I will continue to be a just above mediocre therapist. But the big thing in terms of the neurosis and in terms of the narcissism is knowing that I'm not superb, but also I'm not terrible.
0: Oh, I love that. I think that would be hugely alleviating for a lot of people. I hope so. Yeah. Um, so jumping a bit, Aaron, but <clears throat> what does a deliberate practice-focused supervision session look like
1: Yeah, fantastic. Um, That's a how long is a piece of string question in some ways (laughs) in that it really depends on what is the thing you need to work on. Ah. If the thing that you need to work on is dropout, then what it typically looks like is let's identify the problem, let's generate some hypotheses as to how we solve the problem, let's gather data that supports our hypothesis as well as data that refutes our hypothesis, and then now let's set that up as a goal. Often what we find is that there's kind of two levels of deliberate practice going on. There's kind of the the bigger picture deliberate practice. You can't work on 20 things at once. Yes. But you also can't work on a dropout rate, dropout problem between two sessions, between supervision with me this Monday and next Monday. So a dropout rate thing might be one of those bigger macro issues and that might be something that we come back to in three months to see what does the new data say about the thing that we put in place. But then in a micro session, it might be the supervisee coming in and saying, I'd like to show you a video of something that went horribly wrong. And we have a look at the moment where, you know, there was an empathic fail or, you know, the the session broke down in some way or simply that the, the supervisee didn't know how to respond to the client. And then we generate some hypotheses. How would you have liked to respond to it? Now, let's Let's think about that. Are there any other ways you could have responded Was that authentic for you? How about we role play one? How about we role play where I do one and you, you're the client and we try it out and the person goes away now having gone through that experience of getting into the real micro of that.
0: That's really cool. You said the magic word just before, um, it's role play, because I know yeah. that I, was, I, just, I just have a curious question. Why do so many psychologists hate role plays and why are they better in deliberate practice session?
1: Because uh, we do them wrong.
0: Okay. All right, cool. um,
1: yeah. T- typically, and and I I say this this is my experience as a trainer rather than as a supervisor. So often role plays in training look like you go off and do a training, right? You go off and do your schema therapy or your EMDR or whatever, and then at about three o'clock the trainer has run out of his or her a material, and says, "Now can you, you know go and do a role play?" And then they go out and smoke a cigarette or you know ca- have a coffee or. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, answer their emails and you do this hour-long exercise in theatre sport confabulation and then at the end um, you give each other feedback and the person says, you've got a really nice manner and I found it really easy to talk to you and I think you're, you're a really nice person and, you know, I enjoyed the session and you've got nothing out of it. To do role play well, it's got to have a couple of preconditions. One is that it's got to be small and focused on something small. Any role player that goes for longer than three minutes is a waste of time. Really?
0: Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. Okay, go on. <laughs> you, sh-
1: you shouldn't You shouldn't be working on your ability to, you know, be a character actor. You should be working on your ability to open a session. You should be working on your ability to ask about suicide. You should be working on your ability to do a psychoeducation thing. So break it down to something small.
0: That's yeah.
1: Secondly, the feedback should be actionable. It should be when you said this, I felt uncomfortable because it made me think you were being judgmental. Three, it needs the person to be given an opportunity to have a think about that feedback and whether they agree with it, whether they need to modify it. And then four, it needs an opportunity for them to do a do-over. So actually when we do role plays, it's always a double role play. It's a three-minute role play, two-minute role play, bit of feedback, bit of thinking time. Now let's do the role play again.
0: Wow. That sounds amazing. Like literally, I've never experienced anything like that in in all the role plays I've done in trainings. It's been at least fifteen minutes. I've never had a three minute role play. And it, you're right. It's always been like at towards the end of the day. And then both of us, like if we are in a group, we're like, oh man, we're so tired. And yeah. then we we had a like, and then we're always like, what are we doing? And then we don't know what we're doing. And then we try and do something, and we're like, oh, it was nice. <laughs> it was literally all the things that you just said.
1: And it, and it goes back to the point that I was saying before, The deliberate practice is actually mentally exhausting. If you do that three-minute role play, the feedback and a three-minute role play, I guarantee you will be mentally fatigued at the end of that.
0: that's wow. hard.
1: Whereas Thank the 15-minute role play, I, I can fake 15 minutes of a therapy session with anyone at any time without, without having any kind of mental work happening there.
0: Wow. That is so cool. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I think that's really, it's really good to know that. Mind is blown. Like I already loved deliberate practice before, but hearing you speak about this with, I think you're quite passionate about it by the way that you speak about it. It, it really is quite convincing that this is, uh, it could be a beneficial way for a lot of early career psychs to proceed. And so if listeners want to apply deliberate practice to uh, like include it in their professional development plan, how can they go about this?
1: I think the really key thing is to find a supervisor. You've got to find a supervisor who... Is, is keeping up with that literature, but it's also that you feel comfortable being uncomfortable with. So you have to be in a relationship, a supervisory relationship, where you can step out of your comfort zone, and I use the word permission to fail. You have to be willing to do role plays, show videos where it didn't go well, and that you and your supervisor, you might have a laugh about it, you might have a cry about it, but that it's not a judgmental, belittling, criticising uh, kind of experience and say, you know what, I'm going to show you my worst and we're going to work on it together. So I'd say actually interviewing supervisors rather than the other way around is a really critical part of the process. You should look for the supervisor who can create that comfort with you and who's willing to give you that tough feedback. Obviously, the supervisors who work with us are pre-parole, um, mm-hmm. working within that model and, you know, we've got our CPD and whatever, but, you know, I don't just want to shill um, my stuff. There are a lot of supervisors out there who are um, really keen and really capable in in doing that. But I'd say that the key part is in interviewing and contracting with your supervisor that you say, this is kind of what I want.
0: So if listeners want to find a supervisor, what are the questions that they can ask them to see if they use a deliberate practice approach? Is it like, do you use a feedback-informed treatment or deliberate practice approach? Like what are they trying to, how do they find this out?
1: Yeah, I, I think the starting point is to ask about data. Uh, So, so feedback informed therapy is that's, that's Coke, that's Coke, right? It's Coke or Pepsi. So feedback informed therapy, that is the Scott Miller school of doing that. It can also be um, the outcome informed approach. It can also be measurement based care. There's a whole bunch of different client directed outcome informed are all different methodologies that are kind of um, outcome directed. So I think the starting point is to ask supervisors, are they interested in data? Are they interested in effect size? Are they interested in dropout rate? If you go in and say, I want to work on, I want to establish what my dropout rate is, and I want to establish what my effect size is, and I'd like to improve them. If the supervisor says, well, actually, I'd like to make sure that you master psychoanalysis, there's probably not going to be a great fit there if you'll pardon the part.
0: That makes a lot of sense. No, that's really helpful. Thank you. And- if listeners have listened to this and other than finding a supervisor and, and it sounds like PrEP has a lot of uh, great supervisors who use that approach, is there anything else like practical and realistic that listeners can do as a next step if they're interested in deliberate practice?
1: Look, if, if they'd like to contact us at, um, at PrEP, you can dig us up at um, PrEP.clinic. Uh, I'd also um, probably look at some of the more I guess, psychologist-focused books. I think you mentioned Better Outcomes um, recently. Daryl Chow's book, The First Kiss, um, is excellent. So, yeah, I'd I'd probably jump on Scott Miller's website and I think there's a bunch of quite good um, books there. Some people learn much better, um, you know, working their way through uh, a well-written text.
0: Yeah, I really enjoyed the Better Outcomes and they're quite – I really like them as well because they're actually quite slow-going books, uh, and I say that deliberately because you have to you have to do the activities. So it's like, go do this, collect the data, come back, set Absolutely. up a plan, go do this, come back. And so I really enjoyed that approach. Were you a co-author on The Better Outcomes, or I feel like you have a different no. book?
1: No. No, um, myself and Kay Frankum, Daryl Chow, uh, Nathan Castle and Raylene Alvarez uh, wrote a book called Creating Impact, which came out last year, I think. Creating Impact has the deliberate practice stuff in there, but it is more taking a deliberate practice approach at that next level up when you're kind of starting your first clinic. Oh,
0: okay, Um, cool. So
1: so there is stuff in there about supervision, there's stuff in there about clinical governance, there's stuff in there about financial management and kind of doing the more business management leadership side of things um, really well. So, yeah, Creating Impact is a good resource, but not specifically targeted at... um, Early career, who are just working at um, mastering their clinical chops.
0: Thank you for clarifying, because I did no, I okay. did download Creating Impact last year. I'm sorry to say that I haven't read it yet. It's on my list, um, but I do. I was like, no, I'm sure you've been on a book, yeah.
1: No, no, that's totally fine. And, and again, I'm, I'll, I'll, will take the fifty bucks if people want the book. But uh, the, the target audience is
0: certainly <laughs> um, yeah, totally. It's, it's, ju- <laughs> it's just
1: that next, next career stage.
0: Yeah. Um. Well, Aaron. What's the biggest takeaway you hope listeners will learn from our conversation today?
1: The big thing for me is I, I'm i really passionate about early career people and I'm really passionate about the potential rip-offs of people who are early career and I don't think that training in psychotherapy is a rip-off. However, I think you can be ripped off by feeling that you aren't a good enough therapist unless you've got an entire Um, Scrabble box full of letters after your name Of all of the different therapies that you've learned. So I guess the big thing that I'd I'd suggest to people is We're not anti-model We're not anti-therapy technique But work on yourself First and then as you get to Know yourself better You'll know what your weaknesses are And if you need to be able to do Cognitive therapy and you can't do cognitive Therapy, it's totally worth you Going and investing in some cognitive therapy training if you need to be able to do EMDR and you can't do EMDR, it is totally worth you going and doing that. Whereas just collecting it, you know, like like some sort of stamp collection, is not necessarily a pathway to becoming better at what you're doing.
0: I think listeners just breathed out a collective exhale of relief. Um, so thank you for saying that. That's really good to hear. Aaron, if listeners want to learn more about you, I know you already mentioned the PrEP website or get in touch. Are there any other links or could you remind us of the link?
1: Yeah, so it's prep.clinic. Um, if you're interested in supervision, uh, so I obviously uh, train supervisors as well at stap, stap.org.au. If you'd like to work with us, um, benchmarkpsychology.com.au or if you'd just like to LinkedIn stalk me like um, you obviously did a few months ago, You can just hunt me down on LinkedIn and keep up with um, whatever, whatever musings I'm putting out on any given day.
0: Thank you so much. I'll pop all those links in the show notes and listeners. I'm really passionate about this approach as well. And I think, I think it's really wonderful that we can, we can adopt it and that we've got something that is really evidence-based in leading to improved outcomes. I think that's really cool.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much, Bronwyn.
0: No, thank you so much, Aaron, for your time. I know you're such a busy person, so we really appreciate your time and expertise. And listeners, thank you so much for listening. And if you're loving the show, you don't want to miss an episode, be sure to press follow on your podcast listening app. And if you've got a mate who would love listening to this episode, do feel free to share it. It'd be so great and word of mouth is really the best way to get these episodes out. So listeners, that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to Mental Work. Have a good one and catch you next time.